The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Almighty God, we delight in you. Our heart is glad in you. And we are thankful for your faithful care that you have given to your church as we coursed through uh, the book of Amos and now as we set sail through this epistle uh, written to the church in Ephesus. God, with eager anticipation, we look to you, hoping in your steadfast love, needing, needful to, to receive from you, to hear your voice, to be nourished in our souls. We eagerly look forward to what awaits with each passing Sunday gathering as we take our time um, exploring the wonders of this epistle. And so this morning, as we begin it, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would anoint the preaching of your word, that you would open ears and allow hearts to be uh, soft, to receive lasting um, imprint of your, of your word upon for transformative effects, God, to bring about what we desperately need, and that is more of the life of Christ in us. So we put this prayer before you, looking to you, and we trust, God, in your steadfast love and and pray that you would establish uh, this work together in seeking the God of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a book we are beginning here now, huh? Ephesians. So excited. And let's begin. Let's begin. Uh, we've gone through a lot, right, this last few months. First, it was COVID-19 that kept us in lockdown, you know, inside only to go out for essentials. Then recently, the far-reaching smoke that quickly closed doors on safely spending time outside, you know, for your health, it was best to stay indoors, You run the central air if you have it and avoid the smoke. Both scenarios had similarity in being somewhat confined to your home. You know, not able to exhibit the typical freedom you were so accustomed to. During those times, what predominantly occupied your thoughts? Was it, I can't wait for this to pass? pandemic or the smoke? Or maybe, you know, just simply, this stinks. Like, this is lousy. I'm, I'm bored. You know, not getting outside to do it is considered my norm. That's not healthy for me, both physical and psyche. My, my, my mental well-being and my physical well-being is in great jeopardy, okay, under these restraints. And I imagine... They are similar thoughts, you know, were circulating your mind during those closed in times. What if you were under house arrest? Not in a prison cell, but literally not permitted to leave your home at all. And not just for two weeks, as those who have been quarantined have experienced. Not two weeks, which would be hard enough, but, but we're talking months or years. Where would your thoughts take you then? Today, 
we get a peek into the heart and mind of one forever changed by Jesus Christ as to what weighed heavily upon his thoughts. The opening verse makes clear who is writing this letter and who it is addressed to. Verse 1. Let's read that again. Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I failed to note, we'll be preaching from verses 1 to 2, not the whole 1 through 14. So that's verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul clearly is he who wrote this epistle, and he is under house arrest. And he has three things on his heart and mind that are steadily occupying his ongoing train of thought. What are those three things? They are God, the gospel, and the church. In this case, in writing this letter, there is not an issue in the church that Paul needs to address. It's not a, there's not a false teaching he needs to refute, as it was with other letters Paul wrote to churches. No, it was, it was nothing of that nature. Paul, with God, the gospel, and the church heavily upon his heart and mind, is, is just simply compelled to write a letter to these believers in Ephesus to build them up in love, build them up in the love of Christ. A church that he... It was made up of believers, of course, a church that he planted some years back. Acts 19 tells us this. And he spent over two years with this body of believers in Ephesus, teaching and preaching, establishing the church to be firmly grounded in Christ. And what we will see in Paul's letter that he is compelled to write to these believers in Ephesus for their upbuilding in the love of Christ is that he starts at the highest point. He starts, Paul starts with God. Paul gives, he gives full attention to God with, with this immediate link to all that saints, all that Christians, the church, those in Christ Jesus, all they have because of him through the gospel. It's all his doing through Jesus. It's not theirs. It's, it's all a gift of God to the praise of his glory. It's the gospel. He works out his theology by starting not with man, but with the pinnacle. With the highest, with the most highest possible mark to start with. He starts with God as we all should when, when considering the gospel, when working out our theology. You know, studying what we believe about God as revealed to us in Scripture. Always start with God, and then, from there, work out the implications thereof. This is, or that is why, why Paul, multiple times in the letter, as you will see, takes us to the next connected thought by saying, for this reason. For this reason. That is stated three times. For this reason. The reason of what truth of God that was just stated, this is the right response, right? You'll see that in other epistles as well by other authors. And another familiar implication intro you'll hear is, therefore, now, with this wonderful reality about God and the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, made known to us, we, therefore, therefore, the, the intro to the implications of now having that revealed. Now that we know this, of the gospel, of the grace of God, and how it relates to us through Jesus Christ, by the powerful working of his spirit, we now, therefore, draw these conclusions, these irrefutable outcomes. This epistle is split down right in the middle on this hinge point. Okay? The first three chapters share 
focus thought progression of the gospel of the grace of God and and the second three chapters, the thought progression for the implications thereof. That's how this is outlined. A six-chapter book. The start of chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. From there, the next three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, proceed working through the various aspects of living out this new life in the light of the realities revealed to us of the gospel of the grace of God. As demonstrated by Paul, that is, that is the sequence we are to follow in our theology, in our seeking to know God through the study of his word. Start with God, end with your response to what is revealed of him, for which, mind you, for which you are accountable to him for. His letter is also heavily weaved throughout with the Trinity. Our triune God, working through each person in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the will of God, according to the purpose of God, or, the, or similitude phrases of it are repeated. You'll hear this, okay? As is the phrasing in and through Jesus. That will be abundantly clear. In him, in the beloved, in whom, from whom. You'll see that repeated. We'll see this repeated throughout the course of this epistle. Great emphasis is placed on everything being in Christ. And by Here is the third person in the Godhead. And by the powerful working of his spirit. You see the gospel. It's the Father's plan fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. And Paul, with with angelic form, threads the mystery of God's will revealed to him through the gospel and the workings of it out among the Trinity on behalf of the church to the praise of his glory. That's the epistle here. And to the praise of his glory is another phrase you'll hear repeated. To the praise of his glory. It's all for the glory of God, and it is for this reason, as Paul states, For this very reason, that those in Christ Jesus, life will never be the same. The opening of Paul's letter, the first two verses, which we'll cover, the opening of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus provides three testifiers of that. Three testifiers that the gospel of God's grace revealed forever changes one's life. If it's truly revealed, it changes your life. There's not an alternative there. The first testimony of that is a radically changed life. Paul himself, right? And what do we know of this man, Paul? who penned this letter to the church at Ephesus. Well, as already stated, we know that Paul started the church in Ephesus, that he spent over two years there teaching and preaching. So he has invested much in these believers. And he's now under house arrest in Rome, essentially in prison, which he makes mention of later in this epistle. But, but before that, Before he was an apostle, before he was planting churches, what do we know of him? For starters, from another one of Paul's letters written, we learn that he would be considered just as a man, as a physical man in his feature, just that his physical stature and voice were weak, right? 2 Corinthians 10.10, for they say, I mean, granted right now he's an apostle writing a letter, but 
This is talking about himself. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of, is of no account. Right? That was kind of like, that gets somewhat, somewhat of a picture of what Paul as a man was. Yet, right? Yet, he was a force to be reckoned with, nonetheless. Due to his zeal for what he believed. He was. Paul was, he was strategic. He was a strategic man. He was an intellectual powerhouse. And he had this inner fire that was seemingly unpersuadable. I mean, consider, he at one point being constrained in the spirit to go up to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to him there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to Paul, tells Paul plainly that in every city, imprisonment and affliction awaits him. I mean, consider already having that burden upon him, which is heavy enough, it is then further exacerbated by the added measure of loving brethren begging him not to go because of what awaited him. He's like, ah! I mean, talk about being pulled apart in two different directions. Acts 21.13, you know, Paul is answering them, answering the, the, the brethren who are begging him not to go. He goes, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Like, ah! You guys... You are tearing my heart out. I mean, he's just honestly hurting, open about this. He had much angst over their hurt. And it, was, and it wasn't over what awaited him, but it was the heartache expressed towards him out of their love for him who were fearful for his life. That tore him up. But but he was still not persuaded. He was not persuaded from the convictions firmly held that he was to go to Jerusalem knowing great persecution awaited him. We see this faithfully demonstrated in Paul's life, right? Steadfast and boldly courageous for Jesus. Paul Paul started strong and he faithfully endured suffering through the years of ministry for the sake of Christ. Countless beatings, sleepless nights, shipwreck, hunger, exposure, stoning, and more. He faithfully endured sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the church. And he finished well. All the way to the end, he finished well. He finished his course. The orders he received from his commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, He finished. He fought the good fight firm to the end. He was a force to be reckoned with. And Paul was also, he was also a force to be reckoned with before his conversion to Christianity, right? Acts 9, verses 1 through 2. But Saul, which is is Paul's name before his conversion, Saul who became Paul, but Saul still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he, had, he attested to this himself in Galatians. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and tried to destroy it. And this was legit. Like after his conversion, all who heard him speaking of salvation through Jesus Christ, they were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, the very name he's preaching? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them, bring the Christians to be to bring them bound before the chief priests? I mean, the people couldn't believe what their eyes were seeing. And nor could the disciples. Acts 9, 26, And when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Attempted, right? And they were all, yes, all of them, they were afraid 
of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It's like, no way, Jose. You're not coming in here. I mean, you are trying to pull off a conversion just to get in the ranks amongst us, amongst the disciples, and take us off bound to prison. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No way. No, I don't think so, Paul. This is not going to happen. That was their attitude. They were afraid of him. They were not trusting him. The disciples didn't buy. The disciples of Jesus Christ didn't buy it either. They were fearful of him and for good cause. For good cause. It required Barnabas, right? Remember the story? It required Barnabas, son of encouragement, to take them aside, take the disciples aside, and assure them, like, no, no, this is for real. This is for real. He is no longer the same man. His life has been forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that reason, they welcome him in as a brother. Paul's life was radically changed. He testifies it to it himself, furthermore, in Galatians. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond, all, beyond many of my own age among my people. And so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart, here's the change, right? The radically transformation. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach, among, preach him among the Gentiles transformation. And Paul immediately obeyed. He immediately obeyed. And all the faculties, okay, all the faculties of the person, this physically weak and speech of no account person, all those faculties that were once set to destroy, and he was a force, right? They were set to destroy the church of God, the church of Christ. They were now set to build it up. A radical transformation. And it's important to note, church, the fact that Paul had a lot of virtuous qualities about his character. He did. They were just at one time set (laughs) in an unrighteous manner. They were set in the wrong direction. But he had these qualities until his life was forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, for these reasons, when that happened, these virtues of Paul, these qualities geared toward destroying the church are now set, are now leveraged to build it up. And we can take encouragement in this church. I mean, is there, is there anyone in or, or just even outside your family whom you are desirous to see come to faith and steadfastly follow the Lord? One who has a lot of, a lot of strengths and abilities, but, but sadly, you see them all directed in unrighteous pursuits. Listen, and be encouraged to know that, that God delights in taking that which was once harnessed for evil purposes to turn it and use it for good. And it doesn't have to be explicitly evil, vile things. It simply could be vain, empty, meaningless things that have no value, no beneficial contribution to society things to which receive all the individual's ability and strength. The gospel, like a, like a light switch, like a flip of a switch, can harness all the strengths and God-given abilities once used for unrighteous purposes to be set on a new course. All because of the gospel. For this reason, in Christ Jesus, life will never be the same for them. Saul was one who was so zealous for the tradition of his fathers under the law and persecuted to the church persecuted the church to the point of death because of it but now as paul considered his life but here are the switches but now paul is one who considered his life not of any value 
nor is precious to himself, but only that he may finish his course and the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Encouragement. Encouragement to us who are desirous to see a friend, a co-worker, a relative, a family member come to faith and follow Jesus. You know, train, train your eye to see the unique qualities the person has and pray that God's will to the praise of his glorious grace would be to harness them for the right, for righteous purposes in Christ Jesus. And if opportunity presents itself, you know, affirm these qualities. Affirm these qualities so long as it, it doesn't, in the same breath, approve unrighteous behavior, but we can affirm them. If we see those strengths, affirm them so long as it doesn't condone sin, of course. Because of the gospel, the grace of God, life was never the same for Paul. Same as for all who are in Christ Jesus. A radically changed life testifies to it. As does also our place in regards to authority. As one's both under authority and entrusted with it on behalf of Jesus Christ. Paul, by the will of God, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. As his opening address to the church in Ephesus states, Paul, under the authority of Jesus, was called by God to be an apostle. And this is capital A apostle. You know, the word apostle could be used in a, in a broader terms to describe one who is simply sent, okay? Which is literally what that word means, sent or to send away. A person commissioned by God as his representative messenger, you know, sent on a mission to found and establish churches. A disciple of Christ commissioned by God to preach the gospel. The word apostle could be used to describe such examples. There is, however, a distinguished apostleship that stands far apart from the broader context. First of all, Scripture applies the word to our Lord. He applies the word apostle to Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus was certainly one who was sent, right? Sent by God the Father to accomplish his mission, plan of salvation. Jesus was sent from heaven to earth and completed his mission. He was an apostle in that sense, capital A apostle. And then there are those apostles who wrote scripture, as Paul being one of them states in in chapter 2 of this very epistle, when speaking of us all, Jew and Gentile alike, being all members of the household of God, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. You know, those apostles could also be noted as being capital A apostles. For no other one who is sent by God is writing scripture. Okay? Ben was was sent to Hood River Valley to plant Pillar Bible Fellowship. His word in my life bears much weight, but it's not gospel. Unless he is rightly preaching the gospel, of course, then it's gospel, but it's not gospel. His words are not being recorded and added to the canon of Scripture. Okay? Those apostles, those who wrote Scripture, who, whose words laid the foundation, along with Jesus and the prophets, of what we believe are recognized as such. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul, under, under, right? He's under the authority of Jesus, is an authority over the church on behalf of Jesus. So in short, leading up to our second point, second testifier, Paul had a proper holding of authority. He had a proper holding of authority as one whose life has been forever changed by the gospel revealed to him. Paul knew his place in regards to authority, both under it and bearing it. Okay? Paul, who once tried to use his position of authority to destroy the church, was now under the authority of Jesus, giving his life in the position of authority to serve it. His life was always at the command of Jesus, and it was always for the benefit of the church. That's Christ-like authority. Others seeking, not self-seeking. I mean, he labored selflessly. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul did that to the fullest measure, while all along he wasn't shrinking back, shrinking from declaring to those under his authority, declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And to the praise of God, that includes us. For he is, he is uncontested to be the most prolific contributor to the New Testament writings. I mean, of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul is credited with 13 and likely 14 of them. I mean, that's a master bulk of insight into the mystery of the gospel provided to us, to the church, throughout the centuries, thanks to Paul's proper holding of authority as being commissioned by God to do so and not hesitating to carry it out to the fullest. He gave his life to it. We ought to be forever thankful for God's gift of Paul the Apostle. He had a proper holding of authority. How is our holding of authority? How is ours? You know, first of all, we are all entrusted with the gospel. Galatians 2, 7, and 1. There's all other passages as well. They repeat the same thing. We are entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted. That carries weight, dear friend, to be entrusted with the precious gospel. We as Christians all carry with us a measure of authority on behalf of Jesus Christ. We do. We, every Christian, are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is God working through us. We carry that authority. That's you and me when we share the gospel we have been entrusted with. God has made that deposit in us. He is it's his glorious gospel of the grace of God changing us that we appeal to others about, okay? To joyfully come under the authority of Jesus. That's the appeal we make, to gladly welcome him to rule and reign our hearts. Christian, when you are given a place, an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, you come with authority on behalf of Jesus Christ. That's why we can, we can be humbly bold as his ambassadors. It's not a totalitarian authority. You know, it's not harsh and, and loud and aggressive. No, you know, it's nothing of that sort. No, it, it bears a confidence that's made up of grace and peace because you know him in whom you believe. You know in him in whom you believe. You know, that is the proper holding of authority on behalf of Jesus Christ. By one whose life has been forever changed by the gospel of the grace of God. We all carry this authority as ones commissioned by him to make disciples of all nations. I mean, consider, church, do you remember 
the account in Jesus when the soldiers came to him, just, just speaking, just thinking of the power in the name of Jesus. There's probably many great accounts, but this one came to mind. The resurrection power just in the name. Do you remember when Jesus on the night of his betrayal, was, when he asked the soldiers, to whom are you seeking? And the soldiers said, Jesus of Nazareth. I don't picture Jesus was here going, I am he, you know. I think it was, I am he. And what happened? Floored him. 600 floored, leveled him to the ground. It wasn't a big, he didn't have a mic there. It wasn't like a, a, you know, it was just, I am he. But the name, I am he. When we bring that same name of Jesus and share in the gospel, it carries with that same weight of the power. Not that you would see them leveled, but know that you come with that authority. You come on behalf of Jesus when you bear that name. When you share the gospel. And just as we bear proper holding of authority as ones entrusted with the gospel, so we also understand proper honor and respect of authority that's over us. Right? Whether that's the bliss of loving authority over us given to which we receive in glad, welcoming submission, which results in beautiful harmony, or even honoring authority that does not reflect or even acknowledge God and is unjust and unrighteous. You know, even there, one's life that's been, ever, that's been forever changed by the gospel of God's grace, it can maintain a proper honoring of authority so long as it, it doesn't result in coming outside of honoring God's authority. You see how that can exist? A proper holding of authority, both under it and also bearing it. It's a key testifier of one whose life has been forever changed by the gospel of God's grace. Now, parents, stay tuned. Okay, stay tuned in, but I'm going to... Don't lose me as I adjust the frequency here just a little bit. Just adjust the frequency to sharpen the signal sent out specifically to our youth here. Okay? I need youth heads kind of pop up. Know that I'm like in the right tune here. The right genre that you guys are keyed in. You know, children, those here who, who still live at home and are dependent on your parents' tax returns. Do I have your attention? Okay. From late teens to early single digit here, I need your ear. Okay. I have a question for you. If you do not honor, respect, and obey your parents now, whom you see, how are you to honor, respect, and obey your Heavenly Father, whom you do not see? Your parents, from your first breath of air on this planet, have supported you, have supported your existence in continuous daily ways. I mean, multiple years is required for you to simply wear a diaper, okay? That was not just a weekend. That was years. You simply lack the ability to properly expose of your bodily wastes which included the bliss of wiping your nether regions in the process, okay? Unless, of course, unless, of course, you had what we would call a blowout, all right? Every parent knows the blowout, in which your functified, frothy fecal matter was so massive and explosive that it shot up out of your diaper, typically your backside, Soiling all of your clothing and body. Yes. And this, which it usually took place at the most inconvenient of times and locations, like church service. Okay? That was a classic scenario. Yeah, that was dad and mom, or both, working together, who dealt with that mess while you cried your eyes out and fought against us. 
And this pattern, okay, this pattern of parenting continues beyond diaper phase. Functified fecal matters of life continue throughout your, parent, throughout your upbringing. You know, self-produced life blowouts. Toxic circumstances you place yourselves in, soiling your backside, all of your body and garments and life around you, a mess which dad and mom, in love, do their best to help, attempting to work with you in cleaning things up proper, directing you to get things back on track, on the right track. But so often, it's like, it's like giving a cat a bath. You know, it's, it's met with resistance. It's like giving a cat a bath, combating the help and, that you're trying to, to provide, attempting to escape, you know, uh, the, the, the care being shown at any opportune moment, even inflicting scratches, you know, harm to the very hands that are caring for you. And when all is said and done, no thank yous are given. There's no thank yous, just gnarly glares expressing, I can't believe you just did this to me. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. That, I'm saying it like it is as parents. There's parents here are laughing and nodding. They're not saying no and objection. Okay? This so often, not all the time, not all the time, but so often is what it feels like as parents. Keep tuning in, kids. Keep tuning in. All through the years of your upbringing, your parents daily pour out time and energy and resources to keep you alive and to help prepare you for independence. That's the goal one day, for you to be self-independent. My guess, listen, my guess is the bed you woke up in this morning and the breakfast you ate and the clothes you are wearing now were not purchased by you. And yes, I hear perhaps a teenager silently object, saying, hold on, I bought these shoes and these are the, I bought these clothes with my own money, you know? Whoopity-doo, you know? <laughs> Big deal. That's just evidence of progress credited to your parents on you making steps towards independence. Baby steps, mind you, and pun intended. Baby steps towards that. I'm confident you did not pay last month's mortgage for the house you live in or grocery shop for the entire house or cover any of the bills, utility, insurance, phone. All these things required to keep a household operational. You didn't. Your objection, if you had one, is grossly overruled. You owe your parents everything. Now listen. How do you honor, respect, and obey your heavenly Father, whom right now you do not see, if... You do not honor, respect, and obey your parents now whom you do see. Jot down Romans 1, verses 29 and 31, for later reference. Please keep the dial tuned in loud and clear, children, as I read these following verses from that passage of where Paul gives a clear description of practices by those who will not, I say again, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. To put it another way, those who are going to hell. They are, all, or they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Whoa, whoa, hold on a sec. That's got to be a misprint. How did that get in there? Well, what book am I reading out of anyway? Oh, it's the, it's the Holy Bible. It's God's word. I guess it does belong there. Haters of God, insolent, 
haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's right in the mix. It's right in the mix of some of the most deplorable practices of those who are going to hell. How do you honor, respect, and obey your heavenly Father whom right now you do not see if you do not honor, respect, and obey your parents now whom you do see? you are thinking those don't go together, you are believing a lie. And for one who sadly does not have parents or, or who had parents that were abusive in any shape or form, Firstly, I'm sorry. That is a horrible thing for any child to experience. I'm sorry. The question, however, can still apply. Think on a caring, trustworthy, authoritative, or you could say, parental figure in your life right now, you know, there would got to be at least one. An adoptive parent, a guardian, a grandparent, a pastor, a teacher, next door neighbor, you know, one in your life who is trustworthy and clearly vested in your life for your good. Apply this question to them. Honor them. Show them great respect. I, I plead with every youth who has a listening ear in this moment to heed God's word, to honor your father and your mother. Respect and obey. It is right and pleasing to the Lord, and it comes with a promise that it will set your life on a fruitful path accompanied by peace and strength all the days of your life through every adversity that life brings. Honor, respect, and obey God's commandment to honor, respect, and obey your parents. This is the life in Christ Jesus to which God has saved you to. Knowing your place in regards to authority, both under it and bearing it, and having both of those united in one purpose, And that is to serve his people, to serve the church. For the one whose life has been forever changed by the gospel of the grace of God revealed to them are ones with proper holding of authority as placed by Jesus Christ who are servants of Jesus. Our third point And for this reason, servants to Jesus are servants to his blood-bought people, the church. Paul, in prison, remember, he he is thinking about and writing to the church. As a servant of Jesus, Paul is serving the church. 
And what is the heart's motive behind this service to them? What's the heart motive? Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Nearly every epistle has this in the introductory. Nearly every one. Grace and peace to you, to the church, to the believers, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is, be, what is behind this intro that is clearly a unified heart motive behind serving Jesus and therefore serving his body, the church? What is behind this? It's the gospel of the grace of God. You know, Paul invests half the letter, okay, three chapters worth of exploring the wonders of the unmerited favor from God to us through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Half this epistle. Today, we have set foot together on this embark through the book of Ephesians. And I am, I'm anxious, in a sense, anxious with hopeful excitement for what awaits with each step made, venturing into the depths of this glorious gospel, the grace of God, and for the grace of what it will produce in our lives as a result of it, right? For this reason. For our lives never to be the same. That to greater measure, God would, it's a gift that God would grant a lasting impact on our lives. That by the grace of God's presence, his power, his favor, his enablement, we would, we would catapult forward together to greater exaltation of Christ and mutual promotion of holiness in our lives that abides in perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that's the aim, is it not, for each of us? That is the desired outcome of serving one another, serving the church, right? That we, reconciled to God, no longer under his wrath, but now having peace with him, brought about by the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who is himself our peace by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, those things that were against us, abolished them by shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary for us undeserved sinners, that we, with that grace, with that grace revealed and rightly responded to, serve one another to stay our minds on it, to stay our minds on this gospel of the grace of God, to be kept at perfect peace by him, you know, trusting him wholeheartedly for this grace in what, in what he has done, even as Ben prayed earlier, at what he has done for us through Jesus by the power of his spirit, has done, it's past tense, it's finished, Redemption is complete. The work of salvation is accomplished. All the privileges we have in Christ are ours assuredly. We just, we just haven't acquired possession of them yet. But that makes them no less ours. Oh, for us to further comprehend that in the fullness, that it would change us. I am excited to go through this epistle. Grace and peace to you from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As ones whose lives are forever changed by the gospel of the grace revealed to them. As servants of Jesus, we serve each other to that end. That's the goal. Grace and peace. In closing, and bear with me, I know I've gone the distance. It's so good, though. But in closing... One last exhortation we may receive from Paul's intro in this letter to the Ephesian church to which we, we can apply to all 
these testifiers of a life forever changed by the gospel of God's grace revealed to them. And that is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Notice how Paul addresses the church. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's a very important tag-on. Tag-on virtue to add. For you can, you can be a saint, a born-again Christian, and sadly, not necessarily be known as faithful. Paul uses the same word when instructing Timothy about training up other leaders within the church. He says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Okay? That... That is how leadership in the church is to multiply. And I believe the chief attribute, though many needful ones exist, but the chief one is being faithful. And this is not exclusively applied to pastors, though it is weighted most heavily towards them. But it includes all Christians, all servants of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, this is how one should regard us as God's fellow workers, servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God, which every Christian to a measure is who has been entrusted with the gospel. We're all entrusted with it. We are stewards of that deposit from God. Moreover, Paul continues, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Required. Faithful. Faithfulness. Trustworthiness. So the question begs itself, are you known to be, are you regarded as one who is faithful? Trustworthy. Trustworthy and that which you are entrusted with the responsibility for and have committed yourself to. When your hand is to the plow onto what God has called you to be committed to, are you granite? Are you rock solid granite dependable in the areas of responsibilities and commitments? you have made. This is a question we need to ask ourselves and examine. I fear men and women of such virtue are scarce these days, especially when you think it over the long haul, right? To finish well. Not months, not even years, but decades. Are you faithful? Let us, let us purpose with all our hearts to be faithful, and chiefly, that is, to Christ. You know, to what you are able, I encourage you to structure your life that you have the capacity to be faithful. If need be, you know, learn to say no. That's a hard thing, hard thing for me to, to learn, but you can say no. Though perhaps you would like to and know you are of the ability to do so, if it results in you neglecting another area of responsibility and commitment already made, learn to say no. As hard as it may be to preserve faithfulness in your lives, sometimes it requires us to say no. It's not a sin to do that. Neglecting areas of responsibilities and commitments made is. To the praise of his glorious grace, 
Be faithful to Christ Jesus in your life that has been forever changed by the gospel of the grace of God revealed to you. Let's pray. Loving Father, as I consider this epistle for one and the opening, two verses that we've spent much time invested in together, um, searching deeply in, into the truths that it, uh, that it holds, the treasures there. I pray that your, your words, all that you would have remain, they would, in a sense, just marinate upon the hearts and the minds of each of us. And namely, the, the gospel of the grace of our God, that, that we would, oh boy, God, words fail. I say marvel, be in awe, be in wonder, be humbled, be rejoicing which is all right and true. One contemplation of the gospel of, of the grace of our God would bring us to our knees in brokenness and cause us to weep, overwhelmed with your love. And the other moment in the same gospel causes us to dance, to leap, and rejoice. Both are proper responses. But the greatest proper responses, that life that's been transformed. That all of our faculties, all how you have made us to be, that there is a, a direct pivot in our life, a complete change of course, that it testifies that the gospel has come alive within us. So I ask Holy Spirit, even to uh, a seasoned saint among us, God, that you would lead us to greater depths. We wait upon you for this, God. We seek it urgently while recognizing we are dependent upon you for each measure that you would entrust us with because it is just further entrusting of this, of this treasure of you in our life. God, help us be faithful. Help us encourage one another to be faithful. Help us to take inventory of, of our lives and, and to what we are able. Position ourselves to be known as faithful and to be faithful servants of you, Lord Jesus, and servants of your church. Faithful husbands, faithful fathers, wives and mothers, faithful children who heed and tremble at your word, who do look to you and love you whom they do not see and take serious and apply your command to love, respect, and obey their parents whom they do see. God, help them embrace that. Help them see that that is for their good both now and for their lifetime. May those of young, young age be awakened to that truth early on. And may those who are on, I'm not sure if I would say the brink, but soon to come of independence, Refresh that. Be examples and encouragers to those younger to them. Both in word and their conduct, they would reflect that, that they would see that this is pleasing and right in your sight and this is for their good. 
pray, Holy Spirit, to be working these, these graces into our lives and through us and out, out among us to be shared and to be, um, to be experienced, that it would multiply. God, I thank you for this time. I do thank you for your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.